The statistics used in this episode of Obscene are from the Sentencing Project and the Prison Policy Initiative. The Sentencing Project works for a fair and effective U.S. criminal justice system by promoting reforms in sentencing policy, addressing unjust racial disparities and practices, and advocating for alternatives to incarceration. The Prison Policy Initiative is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization producing cutting edge research to expose the broader harm of mass criminalization and then sparks advocacy campaigns to create a more just society. You can find both of these organizations at sentencingproject.org and prisonpolicy.org. The United States incarcerates more people than any country in the world. There are currently 2.2 million people in our prisons and jails, a 500% increase in the last 40 years. While it is men that make up the majority of the prison population, it's women's incarceration that has skyrocketed since 1980, increasing by more than 700% from 26,000 in 1980 to almost 214,000 in 2016. No country incarcerates more women than that of the United States. And with an average of 219,000 women incarcerated, women are the fastest-growing incarcerated population. While black women's incarceration rates have been in decline since 2000, black women still have a 1 in 18 chance of going to prison. Latina women, 1 in 45. White women, 1 in 111. Susan Bragg was one of those women. My name is Susan Bragg. That is the name my parents gave me. Just a short time ago, though, I was known by a much different name. It was inmate number 396324. That was my assigned number. If I may, I would like to start today with a small exercise. Don't worry, it is the stay-in-your-seat type. I would like you all to assign yourselves a number. Not an inmate one, but one on a scale from 0 to 10. I would like you to rate your confidence. How confident do you feel right now? Does everyone have their number? Good. Now, if you're anything like me, you're generally at a 6 or 7. I have days when I can't seem to get anything right and stay at a 3. I lied to myself a moment ago right before I stepped up here in front of you all. I am totally at a 10. I'm going to rock this. When I'm actually hovering at about a four, we'll see how it goes. No matter what your number is, I would like you to imagine taking that number and stuffing it in a small cell. Imagine your number is told every moment of every day, verbally, physically, symbolically, that it is a complete failure, worthless, less than nothing, and will never amount to anything for days, years, or even decades. If you're one of the lucky ones, as I was, Your number had an entire lifetime to be built up. Your parents told you that you were loved and valuable. You were smart and could achieve anything you put your mind to. Those in your life, your community, supported you through your hardest trial. So when your number ended up in prison, it was a little battered, but with that support, it made it through. However, statistically speaking, if your number ends up in prison, you are not one of the lucky ones. In fact, you are just the opposite. 
Maybe you have been molested, beaten, abused, raped. You have a 90% chance of having been raised by either a single parent or someone other than your birth parents and are even more likely to have grown up in poverty. Maybe your innocence was sold at the age of 11 or you were initiated into a gang at 12 and it was the first time you felt like part of a family. So when they put a gun in your hands, well, chances are you've either sold drugs or your body to get by, watched a loved one die violently or lost a child to the symptom, to the system. But all is not lost. It is not nearly as hopeless as it may seem. I know firsthand that sorrow, pain, and failure can provide fertile ground for tremendous growth. All that is needed is the confidence to plant that seed. That is where the Defy program steps in. They found me at the lowest point of my life. I had been incarcerated for more than four years. Although I had made every effort to successfully rehabilitate myself, I felt like I was just spinning my wheels. I worried about my future and that of my son. When I saw the sign-up sheet on my cell block, I was the first to print my inmate number. I needed something. Redefine your hustle, it said. Did I even have a hustle, I wondered? Turns out I did. Besides providing intensive personal and professional development education, Defy taught me to look at my past mistakes as useful stepping stones to my future. My criminal career was as a serial bank robber. I committed a series of terrible crimes. I scared a lot of people and put my own as well as other lives at risk. I felt incredibly guilty for my crimes and the pain they inflicted on my family. Defy taught me to face that guilt head on, embrace it, and let it go. I was not my past mistakes. I was more than the worst decision of my life, and that guilt wasn't doing anybody any good. They taught me to look at my crimes in a new light and to discern my marketable skills from them. Successfully robbing several banks meant that I was good at project ideation and execution. I worked well in high-stress situations. I was a creative and motivated self-starter. In short, I had everything I needed to become a successful person. I could even start and own my own business. Defy helped to foster and grow my confidence in my abilities to succeed. Our instructor, Paul Bork, a retired Army drill sergeant and prison guard, was fond of telling us an anecdote about Thomas Edison, how he tried to create a light bulb unsuccessfully hundreds of times. He didn't look at those attempts as failures, but rather that he had figured out a ton of ways of how not to make a light bulb, just as I had figured out how not to conduct my life. With Defy's help, I was able to go on to win a business pitch competition that provided the seed money to start my plumbing business. And that was even before I ever stepped foot out of prison. I went on to graduate the intensive Defy program. Shortly thereafter, a judge saw fit to grant my early release. I was able to go home three and a half years early. I've since committed my life to both my personal and professional growth, as well as that of my peers. Defy continues to support and educate me. What people in my situation need is the help to discover their own confidence in their ability to be successful. The Defy program shows incarcerated individuals they are not forgotten, that their community cares and is there to help them grow. For some, it is the first time they ever hear the words, I believe in you and I'm here to help you plant your seed of success. And I'm here to tell you that that effort, helping to rebuild or building from scratch someone's self-confidence changes lives because we, just like you all, are not numbers. We are people, mothers, daughters, sisters, and we are valuable and filled with endless potential. Thank you. 
We'll get to my conversation with Susan Bragg in just a moment, as well as my interview with Jeanette Panero, director of Defy Ventures, the entrepreneurship program Susan spoke about. But first, I'm going to play you a clip of Coletta Youngers speaking about the cause and effect of women's incarceration in North and South America and how they go hand in hand. She is a senior fellow at the Washington Office on Latin America, where she has worked since 1987. She is also a senior associate with the International Drug Policy Consortium. This clip is played with permission from OpenSocietyFoundation.org. So let me start by talking about some of the, you know, sort of the overall trends and and the similarities that you've asked about. I think there are more similarities than differences between women incarcerated in Latin America and in the United States. And what we find um, in our work, uh, our research and our advocacy work, is that women's incarceration goes hand in hand with social exclusion, poverty, and gender-based violence. Uh, I think in general in Latin America, if you look at um, the women who are deprived of liberty, the vast, vast majority come from situations of extreme poverty, uh, different situations of vulnerability, little schooling. For example, in Colombia, 76% of incarcerated women uh, have not completed secondary school, very few economic opportunities, and often getting involved in the drug trade becomes a way of putting food on the table for their kids. Um, We also see across the Americas um, patterns of Uh, Women having suffered from discrimination and violence, most women have suffered some form of sexual domestic violence before they get into the criminal justice system, and then, of course, while in the criminal justice system. Uh, Many have mental health issues that may be linked to drug dependency. Uh, A surprising number uh, have dependents or mothers, and um, one thing that really struck me when we first started working on this issue in Latin America is the astounding number of women who are single mothers, um, up to 90% of uh, women incarcerated for drug offenses in some cases. Around the world, we see that these women uh, commit nonviolent crimes in general. Um, Homicides are often linked to more violent crimes, such as homicides are often linked to abuse, A large percentage are first-time offenders, and there are lower rates of recidivism than men when they get out of prison. As Coletta Youngers just stated, when it comes to women's incarceration, there are similar patterns of cause and effect throughout the Americas. But for a moment, let's focus on women's incarceration in the U.S. 80% of women in jail were their children's primary caregivers prior to their incarceration. 65% of women in state prisons have a child under 18. 73% of incarcerated women have symptoms of mental illness. 50% of women in prisons are the victims of sexual assault and abuse. 25% of women who are behind bars have not yet had a trial. And 60% of women in jail have not been convicted of a crime and are currently awaiting trial. Women's pay gap in America comes sharply into focus here because many of these women are not only the primary caregiver, but their wages are lower, making it difficult to afford cash bail. The medium annual income of women who cannot afford cash bail is $11,000. Black women's medium annual income, just $9,000. The average cash bail amount is $10,000. So many women who have not yet been found guilty of a crime are stranded in jail awaiting a trial because they cannot afford bail. Even when they can pay, many defendants are not allowed to leave the detention center or the courthouse in order to access an ATM machine. 
We know there is a bail reform movement right now, led by activists, the ACLU, the Marshall Project, and so on, advocating for alternatives to being stranded in jail pre-trial, whether it be home supervision, to lowering bail amounts, and making ATMs easily accessible at the courthouse to use for bail. There have also been federal policies proposed over the past decade that have begun to reform the criminal justice system, like the Fair Sentencing Act, signed into federal law by President Obama in 2010, which reduced the sentencing ratio for those possessing crack cocaine, a very small rebuke to the Reagan era's massively racist war on drugs sentencing guidelines, like mandatory minimums, where 60% of all federal drug charges go to black men and women, while only 8% go to white men and women, even though the selling or consumption of drugs are similar across those demographics. Some reform policies have even had bipartisan support, like Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act of 2015, which would have reduced mandatory sentences, limited the use of solitary confinement on juvenile prisoners, but it didn't pass because this guy opposed it. I am not a racist. I am not insensitive to blacks. I have supported civil rights activity in my state. We didn't believe you then, and we don't believe you now, Jeffrey Beauregard Sessions. Then there's the First Step Act, which was signed into law on December 21, 2018 by Trump. While the White House was quick to claim that they were the new champions of criminal justice reform, in reality, its impact is quite small. It retroactively applied the Fair Sentencing Act, an Obama-era initiative, and placed some prisoners closer to family. But it doesn't address sentencing reform, only reforms inside the prison, and only at the federal level. For some advocates like Andrea James, founder and executive director of the National Council for Incarcerated and Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, the First Step Act completely ignores women and teenage girls that are currently incarcerated, this clip of Andrea James is played with permission from OpenSocietyFoundation.org. And I'm going to go straight to the point. We just came out of the um, um, passing of a piece of legislation in this country um, referred to as the First Step Act that is being touted as one of the best pieces of criminal justice reform ever in history. And the National Council... Um, did for the entire 2018 year, we did nothing but listen. We went from small kitchen tables in lower Alabama, in Appalachia, in California, in Arizona, in Boston, Massachusetts. We went around kitchen tables and listened to uh, formerly incarcerated women. We went into prisons all across this country and we spoke with currently incarcerated women and girls. We um, then moved up to larger listening sessions. We had convenings all across this country, and we brought women together to have these conversations. And then we ended our listening um, year in 2018 with a town hall meeting that we held in 20 communities across the country at the same time, at the, on the same day. 
And we took all of this incredible information from women in prison, in the federal prisons, in the state prisons, in county jails, from women sitting in their living rooms and at their kitchen tables, from women in all of these convenings. And we brought all this information together and we looked at it. And we said, what are, what are, what are these women saying that they need? And not one bit of what was in the First Step Act that's being touted now as this incredible piece of criminal justice reform, not any of it was what the women and girls who are most directly affected. And women, even prior to our uptick in the numbers of women going to prison, women have held and carried the burden and the difficulty of families who have been directly affected uh, of, by mass incarceration forever. Okay, And so they've been entangled in the criminal legal system in one way or another for a really long time, even prior to them becoming directly um, dragged in and incarcerated themselves. And so I think that they're experts. I think that it's clear that they understand what's needed um, and that um, it's important that we listen to them. And when we also now have public opinion, which is something that we work on, um, we, we have an outrageous goal. Our goal is to end incarceration of women and girls. And people kind of look at us and say, what? Uh, you, you mean you just want to reduce it? No, we want to end it and we mean it. Um, and we feel as though having done deep, deep research and looking at who are in prison, going to prisons, having lived in prisons ourselves, we are absolutely certain that we know better ways of, of doing this uh, that don't involve prisons. Um, and um, we're um, intent on getting that done. We may not know how to define that clearly, clearly yet, but we're beginning to take the steps to figure it out. And one of them, again, was this listening tour that we took. And then we culminated, we brought all this stuff together, and we created a campaign that we've just launched with 20 fellows um, uh, called Reimagining Communities. And... Um, it's our way of saying we don't want to try and reconfigure a prison anymore. We don't want to put our energy and ask the universe to concentrate and all the people who are supporting change to focus on prisons anymore. We want to focus on reimagining our communities because we feel as if we do that and we begin to implement the things that we're envisioning, we can make the, the current system obsolete. But it's clearly, as we have seen, from the First Step Act, it is not going to come from that. That is so far removed from what people who are struggling, who are so just, um, their lives have been so incredibly disrupted from this onslaught of incarceration and carceral tools and carceral thinking, and also what the First Step Act is now ushering in. The First Step Act has now opened the door for more digital incarceration, for more e-carceration, for more um, uh, ankle shackles, what people refer to as electronic monitoring. We refer to them as what they are. They're ankle shackles. Um, and um, we're very, very, very concerned about that. And the fact that not one piece of that legislation included what the... Uh, women and girls from the communities most directly affected were asking for. Today I want to highlight one program that has had a positive impact on incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women called Defy Ventures. 
Defy's vision is to end mass incarceration and cycles of recidivism by using entrepreneurship as a tool to transform legacies and human potential. Before I speak with Defy Ventures director Jeanette Panero, I'm going to speak with Susan Bragg, who was formerly incarcerated and who went through Defy Ventures program. Susan is a talented entrepreneur and writer as well, as I'm sure you could tell from the intro she read at the beginning of this podcast. I'm not the only one who thinks so, as she has a chapter coming out from a new book called You Don't Know Me, The Incarcerated Women of York Prison Voice Their Truths. It's edited and has commentary by Wally Lamb, and it's on CounterPoint Press coming out this October. Here is Susan. My name is Susan Bragg, and I am a plumber's uh, uh, apprentice. How did you get the idea to go into this business? Well, my dad started his own plumbing business, and one of the issues he has is uh, women um, going to a woman's house. It can be a little uncomfortable for them to have a strange man in their home, um, and I don't have that issue. Women feel comfortable allowing me into their home, so that's what made me think of it. That makes sense. When did you first learn about Defy? Um, I first learned about Defy. I had been incarcerated for about four years. Um, and one morning, a flyer just mysteriously appeared on our cell block. Um, we have like a bulletin board for usually it's not so great announcements, but I saw it on there um, and I, I read it. And like I said, it just mysteriously appeared one morning. So I signed up. What were some of your personal challenges starting to approach this new business? Well, of course, with any new business, uh, capital is a huge issue. And with plumbing, it requires a lot of specialized tools and equipment, which can get pretty expensive. Um, Luckily, like I said, I had my father's business to fall back on. So he has a lot of the stuff that I use um, to be able to start up. And also finding women that are interested in the plumbing trade is incredibly difficult. Have you started to talk to or mentor other reentrants? Um, is this something that you would be interested in doing in the future? Yes, absolutely. Actually, uh, a couple of months after my release, a girl that I knew in prison was also released, and I was able to help her out, You know, get her on her feet, get her clothes that she could wear to interviews, and just give her some tips because she had been in prison for a while just as I was. So it was made things a little easier for her because she was, you know, kind of in my wake. So I, it is something that I look forward to doing more in the future. Did you feel that before you found out about Defy that um, rehabilitation was on the mind of what um, was, was a part of going to prison or coming out of prison. Do you think that rehabilitation was really part of the subject matter before you came to find Defy? Do you mean for me or for uh, the Department of Corrections? Both, actually. That's a really good question. Um, I think rehabilitation is, it's a two-way street. You have to want to rehabilitate yourself because nobody's going to force you to do it and they can't do it for you. So part of that is seeking out opportunities to rehabilitate yourself. And although prison, that may be the the model is to rehabilitate people. I don't think necessarily that's the number one goal. Uh, I think it's safety and custody is their number one goal. Um, So I think it's really something that you have to 
look out for. And as far as personally, I absolutely, I was so sick of living the way I was living. And the way I was living obviously caused me to become incarcerated, that I sought out every opportunity I could to try to make sure that when I was released, that, you know, I was going to be okay, that things were going to be different for me. I was sitting uh, behind your son and your partner at the presentation, and they were just beaming with pride. I think your son was recording you speak <laughs> your um, when you were speaking. Uh, what has this business meant for you and your family? Well, like I said before, my father started a plumbing business, and being able to carry on a family tradition uh, has meant a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to my son, who also plans on going into the plumbing trade. Um. And just as far as what it means to my family, it's financial stability, which is really important. Um, it, it takes a lot of stress off of a family, especially a family like ours, you know, a young family starting out to know that you're going to be able to pay your bills. Right. And when I was looking at some statistics, um, one of the main statistics for women, especially that um had committed crimes, most of it had to do with a financial burden. Um, is this something that Defy address when they, when they met and talked with you all, um, discussing how to, I mean, what are some of the things that you got out of Defy? I know they talked to you, you all about budgets and they talked to you all about capital and return on investment. What do you think was probably... Um, a few of the main things that you really got out of this entrepreneurship program? Well, what I think makes Defy so special is that it addresses a huge array of issues that are, you know, that are women incarcerated are faced with from being able to hold their own at a job interview, the etiquette that goes along with that, um, doing personal finance, starting a business, and also personal development, like how to get over some of your past issues and just dealing with, you know, emotional things. Um, so I think every person is different. Every person is going to take something different away from Defy. And for me, it was gaining my self-confidence back that, you know, really I had I had stumbled. I had fallen, but that didn't mean I was out of the game. And Defy really helped me rebuild my self-confidence and, you know, teach myself I'm better than my past mistakes. I, I did make, a, you know, a couple of huge mistakes in my life, but those don't defy who I am. My name is Jeanette Pinero, and my occupation is director of Defy Ventures Tri-State. What are some of the challenges you have with the general public or business owners who you would like to see support Defy's mission and your EITs, your entrepreneurs in training? That not many people in the beginning see that there is worth to their pop to this population. You know, so many people overlook it um, and they overlook that, you know, many people who spend time in prison or, you know, have committed these crimes or they are involved with drug deals, things like that. They have a set of skills already that they have learned that they're good at. So many people don't really see that in the beginning. Um, and it's really, it takes some explaining uh, to them and for them to actually come sometimes to our events and to speak to our EITs to really see it for themselves. 
um, or to go into prison with us and actually talk to them. And again, they, they forget that these are real people, that they're not just, you know, what their crimes make them out to be or inmate number. They're actually very smart. And it's really just taking their, those skills and, and so taking that and give them, giving them that opportunity. Can you tell me a little bit about how Defy Ventures got its start? And I know it was started by a woman, Catherine Hoke, but, you know, what inspired her to start this particular business? So she started Defy in New York City, actually. So that's where, that's where we began. Um, it began primarily as a brick and mortar uh, program uh, for post-release, actually, first. So we served people who were formerly incarcerated actual classroom style learning. Then we moved on to a chapter in California. And then she, you know, really thought about, well, this doesn't just start when you get out of prison. This starts before then. So she wanted to reach the people who were already incarcerated um, and kind of prepare them for their time getting out. So that's when we started to go into prisons. And the CEO of your new life program was developed, uh, which is a nine month program in a prison facility. And that program deals with entrepreneurship, but it also helps with employment readiness, personal development training, um, how to improve your well being and help you with your reentry plan. So you, you definitely do a few of, you know, the key business courses, you know, what is your business idea, beginnings of a business plan, but really what we're doing here at Defy is, you know, helping you build up those skills through the lens of entrepreneurship. Was entrepreneurship for reentrance and those currently incarcerated always a part of Defy's vision? For Defy and, you know, Catherine's vision um, was really to help help these people who were incarcerated or who had been incarcerated um, help them start their own business. But if they didn't want to start their own business, um, and this is actually the part of Defy that I love, um, not everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur um, or to, you know, to be a CEO. Uh, if you are, and that's what you want, that's great. And we have, you know, a business incubator that can help you go through that process. Um, but if you don't want to be, maybe you want you want to just refine your leadership skills. You want to get out of prison, come back to society, um, you know, make sure you have stable housing, make sure you have stable employment and that's fine. And so we will help you with that, but it doesn't mean that it stops there. You know, you always have access to our network and we always try to build, you know, your community, um, and help you with any resources that we have. So it's kind of two tracks uh, that we have at Defy. But yeah, I, I just think that, you know, Catherine's vision is started in 2010. So we've had it for about nine years. Um, and I think we've definitely taken some great steps forward um, in understanding the population a little bit more and trying to cater to what their needs are. Starting a business is always challenging enough, but if you are formerly incarcerated, there's a lot of stigma that goes along with post-release, whether it's trying to get a new job and you have to check a little box saying that you were formerly incarcerated, or even getting a bank account because a lot of uh, people re-entrance leave prison with an ID that says um, formerly incarcerated. It says it right there on their ID. Um, so what are 
how do you help with some of the challenges that formerly incarcerated people deal with in your post-release program? So we have our post-release program and our post-release program manager actually has been formerly incarcerated himself. So he has a lot of experience himself with dealing with these challenges. And another great thing about Defy is that we do hire formerly incarcerated individuals who have either been through our program or who maybe haven't. We hire them in these key roles because they really relate to our EITs. And so right off the bat, there, you know, there's some trust. They understand each other. And so I, you know, I've seen Terrell talking, Terrell is our post-release program manager. I've seen him talking to EITs and, and just, you know, understanding where they're coming from, understanding challenges, as you mentioned, something from getting an ID or dealing with parole or probation offices, you know, trying to decide where, where to go for housing. Often, you know, the post-release program manager kind of starts from there. You know, what, what are your basic needs? We definitely don't say, you know, we know everything. So we don't try to be the organization that can provide everything because we just, we just can't. So our goal is always to partner with other organizations or even if it's an informal partnership, just always increasing our network, knowing people who can provide jobs, you know, knowing people from other organizations that can maybe fill the gap that that we have. And so when somebody comes to us and they say, you know, I'm having I'm having issues with XYZ, we can say, "Great, we know this person. I can send you to them and you they can help you, you know, figure out how how to do an ID or figure out how to apply for housing, depending on what their specific situation is. So we always make sure we have personal conversations with everyone. That's really the most important first step. And just reassuring them. A, a lot of a lot of times what we've seen is people, you know, they get out of prison and they just want to hit the ground running, which is is great. They want to get started really fast. And then they get they get a little upset or you know, they feel down about the fact that things take time sometimes. And, you know, sometimes you need to have many conversations before you can get somewhere. And it's not always just a simple solution that one person can provide you. And so it's helping them deal with that. And that's where I think also having our network. So we have Terrell, we have those EITs who are hired by Defy, but then we also have the EITs who have been through the program. We always tell our alumni or tell people who you know, are halfway through the program or have been with us for, for a few years, you know, connect with, with those who have just gone out because they need that, that reassurance and that hope, you know, and to understand that other people have been in their shoes and to kind of calm them down a little and, and let them know that everything's, you know, everything's going to be okay. It's going to work out. And, and yeah, so networking, the network, I think is the biggest part of Defy that, that, is so useful for our EITs. We're always trying to make connections. We're always trying to be at re-entry community events because we don't want to just be the only organization out there that works on re-entry. We want to partner with everyone. We want everybody to know about us. We want to know about everybody else. And we want to say, okay, how can we all help each other? I think that one thing that Defy could really brag about if they wanted to is um, your recidivism rates are incredibly low compared to what they are um, without this program. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Over 70% of people will go back to prison. Um, they will be rearrested. And with Defy, you know, we, we've done the, 
We've done the background checks. We've, we've done the statistics on this. After going through our program, it's less than 5% of people um, that recidivate or go back to prison. I personally think that a lot of that has to do with, it has to do with our curriculum. Um, it has to do with... It's as if they're receiving a mini MBA. Yes, they are. Um, but even more than that, and if you talk to any of our EITs, what they will say is the best part of our curriculum, actually, is not even just the entrepreneurship. It's the personal development and the the character building training of it. Um, because, and, and I heard one of our volunteers say this, actually, at one of our events, um, you know, a good leader needs to look within themselves first. Um, and you can tell when, when they haven't done the work within themselves. Um, you can tell that in just what type of leader they are. And so really having that, that personal development and, and character building aspect of it, um, really looking deep within yourself and saying, Hey, why, you know, why did I end up here? What choices did I make? Uh, led me here. How can I fix that? How, you know, let me look at the personal relationships um, in my life. Really dealing with that and understanding yourself um, is the first step. How do you all at Defy address and discuss some of the unique challenges incarcerated women face, um, whether it be the wage gap or being disproportionate victims of domestic violence and abuse, or being the primary caretaker, how do you address this? It's definitely an ongoing conversation that we have, and it's actually a goal of ours within the year to work on a gender-responsive curriculum, um, especially now that we have facilities that you know are are female facilities. And this is something that we started to notice. And, you know, we even fell into this. Most of the programming in prisons is centered around men because, you know, and most prisons are men's facilities. But when it comes to a women's facility, the programs aren't necessarily adapted for women. They're just, you know, given the same curriculum. And they shouldn't be. Things are different for women, especially when we're talking about an entrepreneurship program. Women business owners they may be treated differently. You know, they may be raising a child at the same time. They may be a single mother. Uh, it's, it's different for them sometimes. When you're talking about the character development and the personal development, you know, oftentimes women are dealing with issues, whether it's, you know, assault or sexual harassment. Um, sometimes that, you know, and again, you said it, sometimes men deal with this too, but it's more prevalent in, in women. So we need to start thinking about that. And it's something we've thought about in the, in the past when we went into women's facilities, you know, we noticed it, and especially actually when we went to York, you know, one of the uh, leaders there, one of the staff faculty, he said, let me look at your, uh, we do an icebreaker. It's called step to line where we do volunteers on one side and we do uh, EITs on the other side. And when we say a statement that resonates with you, you step to line. So you can see, you know, what resonates with the EITs, what resonates with volunteers. And you can kind of just see where are you, where you overlap and where the gap is. And some of the questions that we were asking were ones that maybe be, you might trigger a woman more, you know, more family oriented things. Have you lost a child? You know, anything about your parents? And automatically they looked at it and they said, look, these may be triggering. And that really actually started the conversation amongst ourselves. And we're like, 
yeah, you're right. These may be triggering. And so we started, you know, on our own developing different icebreakers or different questions for the men's facility versus the women's facility. So which led us to have this discussion on how we need a whole gender responsive curriculum to begin with. We need a different curriculum for women. Even our videos and our content, you know, lean more towards we have sometimes professors or, or business owners in our videos and they're all men. <laughs> so <laughs> we need to look at, and you can't tell me there are not any, you know, women out there, female professors and, and business owners that we can have on our videos. Um, so these are all changes that we're aiming to make within the next year or so, you know, re- uh, filming videos for our, our content for the curriculum and just writing more based on, on the challenges that women go through. Lastly, what is what is next for Defy Ventures? What would you like to see happen next with this program? Next steps on on several levels and nationally and within Tri-State. So, of course, generally, you know, the our goal is always to get the word out on, you know, criminal justice reform and what we're doing. You know, one of our goals is, as we said, the gender responsive curriculum. Um, another one of our goals is a youth curriculum. And that is almost complete, actually. So for the tri-state area, we would like to have our program in a youth facility soon. Um, expanding to other prisons in the tri-state area. We're always looking for other states or other cities around the country who want to start our program in their community. So we're always looking for that. You know, we started this new thing this year, actually, where it's our CEO of your new life program, but within the community. So we're taking that aspect of the program and we're, we're actually facilitating it within a transitional home or a work release home. So just taking that and expanding in that way, we obviously want to grow our post-release program as well. Um, We think the in-prison component and the post-release go hand in hand. And then in terms of speaking to on the politics side of things, that's also one of our goals. We have people on our board actually that have those connections. And and the great thing about the tri-state area and, and, you know, we feel like we're really hitting the ground running this year is we have a great board that can help us gain access to those people. So we are actually looking at and probably going to be meeting with a few people over the next few months. In Connecticut, we actually reached out to Senator Chris Murphy's office and we invited him to one of our events at York in December. Unfortunately, he could not make it, but he did write a great quote on how how he supports this and that it is something that, you know, can strengthen communities and end this cycle of dissent, you know, in the criminal justice system. Um, so he wrote this great thing about it and his office supports it. So yeah, definitely all things we're working towards. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about the subject matter and about Defy today. And I hope that our 2020 candidates do a deep dive into this discussion and have some solid policy proposals, Um, not only because uh, we incarcerate more people than anyone else in the world, but also because of women's skyrocketing incarceration rates. Yeah, no, I, I think that we're at a time now where this this conversation um, constantly comes up. 
Um, and it's something that, you know, elected officials need, need to talk about. It's something that can't be ignored. Um, and it's, it's gaining more, more interest. And I, you know, our hope is that defy is a part of that conversation. It's abundantly clear that there's so much work to do when it comes to criminal justice reform. We know that racism and misogyny is rooted in the foundation that our prisons are built on. We know that discriminatory policies and laws in the last 40 years have allowed prison populations to flourish, and that our current system, with its 70% recidivism rate, is not working. But what we do know is that there are policy proposals and studies already out there that have offered real solutions, not only when it comes to greatly reducing prison populations, but also attempts to correct the wrongs of past administrations and their damaging policies. One such study is a case for expunging criminal records. This study was conducted by J.J. Prescott and Sonia B. Starr. Professor Prescott and Starr teach at the University of Michigan Law School. They stated in an article that just came out in the New York Times, the consequences of a run-in with the law can persist for decades after the formal sentence has been served. People with records face major barriers to employment, housing, and education, effectively condemning them to second-class citizenship. Expunging criminal records gives reentrance a real way to build a future. There's also the Marijuana Justice Act, which would end federal criminalization of cannabis. It would also incentivize states to mitigate existing and ongoing racial disparities in state-level marijuana arrests. It would expunge federal convictions specific to marijuana possession. It would allow individuals currently serving time in federal prison for marijuana-related violations to petition the court for resentencing. And it would create a community reinvestment fund to invest in communities most impacted by the failed war on drugs. I urge you to look through the links I've provided on this podcast page. Learn more about this subject matter and talk to your representatives about drafting policy that invests in universal child care, a living wage, free or affordable education, free or affordable health care, because most of those that become incarcerated need treatment in a way to make a legal living, not prison. Until next time, I'm Maya Contreras, and this is Obscene. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.